All right, I'm sure you're all at least somewhat disappointed to see me up here right now because everybody has been very much enjoying Andy's series, uh, going through hymns and some of the history and theology and the hymns that we sing. But he has got the flu, so I got a very late notice on this. Hopefully it's not too hastily thrown together. But I figured what we would do, I, don't, I didn't want to move on to Perseverance of the Saints, but I wanted to continue in our series on Reformed Theology and Calvinism and answering some of the objections and, uh, and a positive presentation. So today we're going to look at the objection that comes from two verses that are frequently cited against us. That's 2 Peter 2.1 and Matthew 23.37. And we're going to learn how we reconcile or understand those verses without um, destroying our doctrine or our uh, understanding of what they actually say. So... 2 Peter 2.1, we have preached on this, so there's been a sermon on it. It's going to be the same basic content, but um, not in sermon form, I guess. But that verse there is cited against us. It says, 2 Peter 2.1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there were also there will be also false prophets among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And here's the part that people cite specifically, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So this verse is used as uh, something to oppose limited atonement, the doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption, which we have taught what that means. And then here it is. They say, look, even the false teachers are said to be bought. They're bought. Therefore, Christ must have died for them, must have atoned for them. That means the atonement is universal. Particular redemption is false. Limited atonement is false. And that is the idea of using this verse against us. So the question that we start with is, does Peter mean this in the redemptive sense? Does he mean the master that bought them in the redemptive sense? Is he speaking of Jesus redeeming them or buying them by his work on the cross? Because if that is what Peter is saying, then yes, we do have a problem. So that's the question that we're looking at. So let's look at the context. First and foremost, as always, is Peter trying to bring up the atonement in this passage? Is that the false teaching that he's worried about from false teachers that are going to arise? Does he uh, build on that question of the atonement at all in this context? And the answer is no. He is not advancing any theory of the atonement. He doesn't talk about the atonement. He doesn't talk about blood or sacrifice or Christ there specifically at all. Now that doesn't prove 100% that this isn't meant redemptively, but we know that the context determines the meaning of words and nothing in this context points us to the atonement. So let's look closer at those two words, bought and master, because those are really going to be the, the, the hinge words, the, the big deal words. Bought comes from agarazzo, and that can be used redemptively. We acknowledge that, but it is a common term to mean redeem, or acquire, or purchase. And 87% of the time that it's used in the New Testament, it is not meant redemptively. It's just the idea of buying something, or purchasing something, or, or really the thrust of the word is to convey ownership. And that is important. Ownership. It's about ownership. Ownership is an inseparable concept from agarazzo. And here's a few examples where you will hear this word being used. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys, agarazzo, buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Buying something. 1 Corinthians 7.30 And those who weep as those who do not weep, and those who rejoice as those who do not rejoice, and those who buy as those who do not possess. Buy and possess there, both the same root word of agarazzo. And so you see that idea of buying and ownership are tied up there. And many of the verses like this can be cited uh, where it's clearly not used in a redemptive sense, a non-redemptive context. And it's a verb whose emphasis is on the resulting ownership that is produced from the transaction, from the buying, the possession of the thing acquired. So <clears throat> the point of verse 1 in 2 Peter 2.1 is that false teachers go as far as to deny the master who bought them or therefore owns them, the master who owns them, and the emphasis is on the audacity of that act. Somebody owns them and they have the audacity to deny him. The master owns them, not potentially, but actually. He does own them. Not like he could own them. He does own them. And the term used here for master, likewise, sheds some light on the non-redemptive context, because the Greek word here is despotos. Despotos, commonly translated as master or sovereign lord, and it's one that emphasizes authority. And you might hear it. Because this is where we get the English word despot. A despot, which tends to have negative connotations in our language, as you probably know. We usually speak of a despot as some authoritarian ruler who, you know, rules over his people cruelly and um, is unjustly in power, that sort of thing. That's where the word comes from. And it's a word for someone who owns or is in authority over slaves or servants. And it's not that it's never applied to God or Christ. It is a few times. But it's never used to refer to them as a, in the mediator or redemptive uh, or as redeemers. It's not a redemptive title. It's not, when that word is used, it's not in the context of them saving. It's in the context of them ruling or the owner of all things. And it's used to reflect their authority or their role as judge. Biblical writers do not use that term of any of the persons of the Godhead in a redemptive sense. It's used to emphasize God's ownership of each member of the human race as creator and judge. Obviously, by virtue of his work of creation, God is the despotos. He is the master, the owner, the ruler of all men. So these two words clearly work together to give us a sense of what Peter is saying. It has nothing to do with redemption. Despotos and master is, is not used in redemptive contexts. And when agarazzo, or bought, is used in a redemptive context, when they do use that in a redemptive context, it's always a clear reference to Christ. It's never questionable. Believers are always said to be the one bought. It's talking about believers being bought. We don't see that here. But that's how agarazzo is used redemptively. And the price, or blood, is always mentioned in the context, such as bought agarazzo with his own blood in Acts 20:28. 20, bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20. So you see, when they mention it in the redemptive context, they talk about what he did to buy. The dying, the crucifixion. And the result of redemption is mentioned. That's when they use agorazo in the redemptive sense. None of those identifiers are present in 1 Peter 2.1 to cause it to be read in the redemptive sense. He never brings up the atonement in this letter in 2 Peter 2. Or uh, uh, in 2 Peter. I think, is it 2 Peter or 1 Peter? Now I'm getting mixed up. It's Second Peter. That's what I thought. Okay, I got one wrong in my notes here. Um, 
The terms, he doesn't bring up the atonement in 2 Peter. The terms redemption, cross, blood, redeem, propitiation are not mentioned in the letter. It's simply not what he's writing about. He's condemning men who owe their allegiance to God by virtue of being his creatures. And they're denying that. And that's what he's talking about. And if what I've explained still leaves you feeling uneasy about how to interpret that verse, let me present to you what I think is the absolute nail on the coffin. Because Peter's making a clear Old Testament allusion. He started the verse by saying, But false prophets also arose among the people, referring back to the false prophets of Israel. And then he uses language pulled directly from Deuteronomy 32, verses 5 and 6, which I'll read. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who has bought you? That's the same language. He has made you and established you. That's what Peter is referencing. That's the agorazo, the buying. And it's speaking there of the Father. You can see here how the concept of God buying a people is grounded in what? His making and establishing them. The ownership of them. Not the redeeming. Not the owning in the redeeming sense. So that's the same bought language as 2 Peter 2.1. It's not a reference to Christ or atoning for sin or redeeming anyone. So you can see it in Deuteronomy 32. Obviously, it's not talking about Christ. He hadn't come yet. It's talking about the Father. The Father doesn't buy in the redeeming sense of by dying and shedding his blood. The Father doesn't do that. But he's said to have bought them. So if it's applied to the Father the same way, then we can see that 2 Peter 2.1 is not applying to Christ. It's not meant in the redemptive sense. And again, there in Deuteronomy, it's used for rebels against God who owed their allegiance by virtue of being his creatures, his creation. So obviously Deuteronomy 32 is not speaking of Christ's atonement, just as Peter is not speaking of Christ's atonement in 2 Peter 2.1. Peter is drawing a parallel between the false prophets who arose among the Jewish community, the false teachers, those that denied God, and the false teachers who will arise in the church. And that's why he uses that same language. Jude and Peter are very similar books. 2 Peter, Jude and 2 Peter are very similar books in theme, vocabulary, the ideas. And he offers, Jude offers near identical warnings in verse 4 of his letter. He says there, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, <clears throat> again talking about those false prophets, those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation, <clears throat> ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Deny the Master about mastership. Again, this along with Deuteronomy 32.5.6 are how we use scripture to interpret scripture. We use the Old Testament there because that's the illusion that he's drawing from. When a verse is accused of going against our tradition, our confession, we have to find out why. We have to do this with, which, with, with each of these verses that is cited so frequently. If we couldn't justify our position, then we would abandon it. We would have to. Our loyalty is to the sure prophetic word, is what Peter calls it. But as you can see, that abandonment is not necessary here. This verse is shown to be a non-factor in the atonement debate. <clears throat> and now, the other one I wanted to look at was Matthew 23, 37. And this one did come up in a Q&A uh, during one of our, oh, I think it was a few weeks ago. Uh, I think Jared brought it, brought it up. 
Matthew 23, 37. I wanted to move it into the main body of teaching, though. Give it a bit more attention because this one gets cited all the time. All the time. You could probably just about cite this from heart. The primary issue here is that it is often cited this way. And see if you can listen and, and hear. I'm going to intentionally miscite this, and I want you to see if you can pick up on why. Why I'm saying it wrong or where I'm saying it wrong. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. That's how you hear it cited. And if you don't hear it cited that, that way, that's how you hear it taught, as if it, that is what it said. But that's not what the text actually says. It says, how often I wanted to gather, not you, but your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks. So the ones that cite this against Reformed theology teach it as if it says that he wanted to gather you not your children, but gather you. And he's, he's talking to somebody and he says, I wanted to gather you and you wouldn't. But that's not what he says. He's talking to somebody and he says, I wanted to gather your children and you wouldn't. So the, the party that is unwilling, that Jesus is condemning, and the party that Jesus says that he wanted to gather are not the same party. It's not the same group. If you remember the example I gave about wanting to take someone's kids to the park, and I said, but their parents would not, it says nothing about the children's willingness or desire to go to the park. It says that the parents wouldn't let the children go to the park, right? That's the example that we cited to uh, kind of clarify it a little bit. We covered all the so-called wants or desires of God a few Wednesday nights ago in part eight. I believe it was part eight when we asked the question about God's universal desire to be saved. We looked there at 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 4, and we talked about uh, the wants or desires of God. If you missed that, you probably want to go back and listen to that lesson. But one of the major points was that God does not have passions like a human because he is better. He has perfections, not passions. He doesn't have desires or wants or wishes. He has perfections. So it's better to speak of God's will, his sovereign decretive will, things that he has decreed to happen, and then his prescriptive will, which is his law. So that is a more accurate way to speak of God. However, in Matthew 23, 37, it is Jesus speaking, and Jesus is both God and man. So he does, in fact, have a human nature that is capable of passions or emotions. And we do see those emotions in Matthew 23, 37. This is the man, Christ Jesus, saying this. So the argument against us, then, is that Jesus wants to save Jerusalem. This is what they're going to say. He, he was ready and willing, but they were unwilling. Therefore, what we just taught, what was that, Wednesday, this past Wednesday, about irresistible grace, that must be false. Because see, here they are resisting. He wants, he's trying. They're resisting it, and so they're not saved. Because that's supposedly a clear case of man's free will, determining whether or not they're saved, right? In Matthew 23, 37. And then unconditional election obviously wouldn't make much sense if that's all the way that this verse should be understood. So, to analyze this, as always, we begin with the context. And, as is so often the case, the basis for using this verse against Reformed theology pretty much just melts away. It, it, it does not take much by looking at the context to figure this out. 
In this context, Jesus is pronouncing judgment against the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. In the whole chapter is about this. He begins the chapter with uh, verses twenty. Sorry, verse, chapter 23, verses 1 to 2, Matthew begins the chapter with, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Talking about their authority. They've taken this authority upon themselves, and he goes on and he details some of their errors, their hypocrisies, and he does that for ten verses, basically describing how bad they are, false teaching, stuff like that. And then he speaks directly to the religious leaders. There's a mixed crowd in front of him. And he speaks directly to the religious leaders, starting at verse 13. Verse 13, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now that is the essentially the same condemnation found in verse 37. So we're going to come back to that. But listen, he goes on. And I won't read all the details of these woes and what he's condemning them for. There's just, there's just too many. But in verse 14, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides. In verse 19, You blind men. In verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. In verse 24, you blind guides. In verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29, guess what he says? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. So you picking up on the context here? Is Jesus making this clear enough? You, you know, is he... Do we know who he's talking to? Yeah, we know who he's talking to. Look at now, look at verse 31. He says, They themselves testify that they are sons of those who murder the prophets. And then he prophesies their murderous ways in verse 34 and 35, saying, I am sending to you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will crucify and kill, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous, Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. He's talking about sending the apostles. They're going to write scripture. He's going to send godly men, prophets. And only then do we read verse 37, where Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. What he just said, right? How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. And once you put it in that context, you get the sense of what he's really saying. You see, when he speaks to Jerusalem, he is speaking to the fathers of Jerusalem, the, the, the murderous religious leaders, the, the fathers of the people who are the children. The scribes, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, the blind guides, the serpents, the brood of vipers. That's Jerusalem that he's directing all this to. The one he literally just said, kill the prophets and the wise men sent to them, the way they always have. So he bookends... This entire section, this entire set of woes, he bookends with verse 13 and verse 37 by condemning them for trying to keep people out of the kingdom of God. That's how he does it. He begins it, all those woes, with verse 13 saying you try and keep people out, and he ends it on verse 37, you're trying to keep people out. So listen to these verses back to back so you can hear the parallelism at both the beginning and the end of the section of Jesus condemning the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, 
For you do not enter in yourselves, and you do not allow those who are entering to go in. And then verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. These are the same fundamental condemnation in those two verses. They were so determined to, not, to deny that Jesus was Lord, to sit in that seat of Moses themselves, have that authority themselves. They're so determined to deny Jesus as Lord that even when they witnessed firsthand Jesus casting out demons in Matthew 12, knowing full well that he could only be doing that by the Spirit of God and the power of God, they still accused him of doing so by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And that's where Jesus warns them they're dangerously close. They are blaspheming the Holy Spirit for knowingly attributing the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, to satanic powers, just so that people wouldn't follow Jesus. On top of that, they threatened anyone who confessed Jesus as Messiah with expulsion from the synagogue. They're doing everything they can to keep people from following Jesus. That's what he's condemning. It's the same hard-heartedness that they are being condemned for in Matthew 23, 37. Jesus came to gather the children of Israel, but the fathers of Jerusalem would have none of it. They wanted nothing to do with it. And if you want to know why and what they were like, then just read Matthew 23, the whole chapter, and you can hear Jesus describing them, how bad they were. The sin of being a stumbling block to believers coming to Christ was something Jesus took extremely seriously. His famous warning about this is found in Matthew 18.36, Luke 17.2, and Mark 9.42. And listen, as he once again, like in Matthew 23.37, 20, he uses language of children for those that follow him. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Again, he's referring to people that come to him as little ones, as children. He uses that sort of imagery because... We come in childlike faith to him. And this is the same sin being condemned in Matthew 23, 13 and 37. Being a stumbling block to people coming to Christ. They're trying to, the leaders are trying to stop them. So the text says nothing about Jesus' will or desire being thwarted by these religious leaders. It doesn't say they're successful. Nor does it say that Jesus wanted to gather uh, that were not gathered. Uh, those that Jesus wanted to gather weren't actually gathered, that they uh, succeeded in, he's trying, and, and then they jump in and they're like, aha, no, they're not going to be saved. No. It says nothing about that. All Matthew 23, 37 does is continue the immediate context of condemning the scribes and Pharisees for opposing him and seeking to prevent others from following him. They were the very people meant to lead the people to the Messiah. The leaders were there. They were, should have been there to lead the people to the Messiah. They should have been the first ones to say, look, there he is. Here's the prophecies that we've been teaching you about. And this guy fulfills all of them. That's the Messiah. Let's go follow him. But they didn't. They were the religiously educated. They were in the role to teach true religion to the people. And instead of doing their jobs, they did the exact opposite. They stood in the way and they opposed the Messiah. So that's what those two verses actually mean. Um, any questions on any of that? Or do you know of any other verses that we can cover? Yep. That, that verse, 
generally speaking, but also referring to his divinity in the sense that how often so he's referring to almost like how before he was even incarnated, yeah. that that wanted to take place in speaking as a man in that sense. So it's kind of interesting that he's exhibiting both. Yeah, I think so. I think Jesus has a genuine emotion that he wants the children to come because he loves them and that he's also referring to like the prescriptive will of God. He sent prophets and wise men to them and what do they do? They kill them. These prophets are true prophets of God pointing people to the true Messiah and uh, the, the fathers of Jerusalem, the religious leaders, wind up killing them. So he's like, look, I've done it over and over and you're just doing what you always do. So yeah, I think it is both. Yeah. Um, Agarasa, is it ever used in the sense of a purchase without a title transfer? I don't know. Uh, whenever it's speaking of redemption, it, it, it speaks of, it gives all the details of, it says something about it's Christ, he's paying the price, blood, he's doing it by blood, and it's talking about for, like he's purchasing people, a people, redeemers. So, it's all tied up there when it's speaking redemptively, I know that. Um, but it is like a transactional thing, a buying and owner thing. So that is tied up in the, the, the thrust of the word of if someone has bought something, they own it, they get title to whatever that thing is. It's not speaking of title transfer It's speaking of God has ownership by virtue of creation. He is the master of all. He owns everyone. He's their creator. He established them, made them. Therefore, by default, he didn't buy them back. He, he, he literally owns them by virtue of creating them. Just like in Deuteronomy, I believe. I mean, specifically made in Deuteronomy, right? Yeah, made and established in Deuteronomy. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think those two verses both speak as if there isn't a a title transfer per se. Right. Yeah, both of them speak of reprobation in essence. Yeah, as they were destined to do, as Peter says later. Yep. Was that? Okay. The second Peter verse, can that accurately be applied to Gentiles denying Christ or such as the beginning of the economy? Is that too far to stretch that the ownership and reference is explicitly talking about, you know, at least all the way back to the beginning of Peter, the apostle of the Jews, God's relationship to the Jews and the denial of them? And he's that specific. Yeah. Therefore, he owns all people, so we could apply. I'm curious, are you saying it can apply to Gentiles? Yeah, I think it can apply to all creatures. Um, 
and specifically here, humans, obviously, human creatures, because he's saying that the ones that deny him are not his children. So they're not true Jews. They're genetically Jews, but they're not true Jews anyway. They're not true Israel. So they're effectively Gentiles. And the basis for the ownership that he talks about is making them and establishing them, which, again, can be applied to all Gentiles. So, yeah, I think it can be applied to all Gentiles. That's why uh, it is a fool that says in his own heart there is no God. I think that person has been... They're denying the master that bought them, the father that has made them and established them. They exist because God made them, and they're denying it. And so it definitely applies in that sense. Was there a question in front of you somewhere? Okay. Yeah. Yep. It's from pray quick and then prepare our hearts for worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that your word is clear enough to help us interpret any hard passages where we can compare scripture with scripture and that you basically interpret it for us through these allusions and references and citations and context that you've made clear. Thank you for a sure prophetic word as Peter calls it. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Give us diligence to study it hard so that we are not reading into it what we want it to say, but rather reading out of it what you have put into it. I pray that we would understand the word rightly and that we would always be turned to greater and greater worship to Christ for our salvation. So we pray it all with great thanks and, and uh, gratitude to you and uh, pray this in Christ's name. Amen.